to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome back to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, resilience, disaster planning, COVID, crisis management, anything that's relatable to those topics. Speaking of topics, if you'd like to be a guest on the show or have us talk about a specific topic, please feel free. You can reach me through LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick on LinkedIn, so you can certainly find me quite easily. Just send me a message and I return all messages. Today, I'm going to jump straight into the uh, topic. Today is part two of uh, a video and recording we did just, uh, I guess, not even two weeks ago. It's part two. So some of you might recognize my guest with a new uh, new background there, I see. So <laughs> I'd like to welcome back to the show. We're going to talk about Brazilians, part two. Dr. Gavriel Schneider. Gav, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Alec. Great to be back and really looking forward to uh, continuing our discussion. Yeah, for, for anyone that didn't know, we actually had a, uh, an agenda and we, we addressed about that much, you know, because we had so much to uh, talk about and which I thought was fantastic. So I invited uh, Gav back to uh, come back and hopefully, um, maybe, <laughs> finish our agenda here. <laughs> well, we, we certainly will give it a try. Yeah, we'll see where we go. <laughs> uh, just in case anybody didn't see part one, can you give a quick um, condensed version of, of your bio? And uh, then I've got one other question for you, and then we'll jump straight into today's stuff. Sure. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Dr. Gabriel Schneider, everyone calls me Gav. Uh, I'm the CEO of the risk to solution group, which is a group of risk-related companies doing security, safety, medical and health, risk consulting, cultural change and technology. Uh, started my career originally as a professional bodyguard back in South Africa, where I grew up, became fascinated with the way people make decisions, spent my academic career researching better decision-making, better training and better preparation. For the past five years, I've been program director of ACU Executive Education's postgraduate program in the psychology of risk. And about three years ago, we founded this idea of Presilience and have been talking a lot about how we build individuals, teams, and organizations that thrive in uncertainty, volatility, and complexity. So I guess that's about as short as I can make it, Alex. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. And you even touched on my next question, if you could give a quick overview a minute uh, uh, minute or two of Brazilians, just so that just in sure. case somebody didn't hear our first episode. Sure. Perfect. So the easiest way to really understand why Brazilians is to look at the maturity model we've built. And the way we look at the maturity model is that most industrial age thinking managerialism-centric organizations focus on compliance as their driver to get performance and outcomes. Compliance is great when we have stability, we have oversight, and we have absolute authority. Three things that we very rarely have in this you know, remote working, complex, uncertain world we live in. So most organizations have accepted the need for resilience or the ability to be able to bounce back, weather disruption, continue through adversity. We found in our research and in our consulting business and even in the training that with a resilience mindset, it is certainly better than compliance but it still comes with some challenges. First and foremost, the idea of resilience is that we are tough enough to persevere and it doesn't really talk much about prevention and preparation, even though we know in disaster recovery, for example, there's a lot of discussion around it. It's the hard part to do, so we don't see it done much. But primarily, the idea of resilience is that we bounce back as quickly as possible to the point we were at pre-disruption. And the whole business continuity focus is how quickly can we get to where we were before disruption? As COVID and anybody who's weathered a tough time and learnt will attest to, we learn so much through adversity that often we, why would you want to return back to where you were before disruption? Because we've learned a better way or we've found another gap or an opportunity. 
And this opportunity-centric focus is really what made us look at resilience. It's around how do we bounce forward? How do we bounce back better, not just bounce back? So those are the two differentiators. That's what I was going to ask you because that phrase, bounce back, um, grabbed my attention right away. You know, and I'm going, but if we go through adversity, shouldn't we come out of it better than before rather than, you know, uh, back at the beginning? You know, that's why it drives me crazy when, when COVID's over, we'll get back to normal. No, we should be in a better position. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you've just nailed why we felt we had to drive this resilience model forward. Uh, you know, there, there's so much jargon already out there. Adding more terminology is not always a good idea. Yeah. But... Um, as, as we discussed on the last one, uh, even when I was doing that keynote for the Business Continuity Institute, the discussion we had with the organizers was the world of resilience is so messy. You know, cyber resilience, disaster recovery, individual resilience, you know, nobody owns it, but everybody claims to own it. And everyone's we, got a different definition for it. Exactly right. But to, to your point, why would we just want to focus on continuity instead of innovation, adaption, and improvement. Because if we're not, we will get disrupted again and again and again. So it's it's a fundamental shift. And I think that the real key of it is because the world has changed, we have to keep changing and we have to keep adapting. And it is fatiguing. It is frustrating, particularly for humans. When we look at the neuroscience and the biology, we're wired for stability. We want homeostasis. But if we want to thrive, and this is about thriving, you know, not, no, I don't think any professional or any real serious uh, practitioner of any of the risk-related um, aspects, you know, again, whether it's security, safety, cyber, it doesn't really matter, ever wants to just maintain a status quo. We always know that our opposition, if it's security, for example, our opposition is working hard to figure out where our vulnerabilities are. Uh, I, I quote uh, Tony McGurk, one of my mentors who helped out with a lot of the Brazilian stuff. He's a fire chief from the UK. And he often says, well, you know, nobody ever told the fire what your plan was and how it should behave according to your plan. That's true. And, you know, I think we get fixated with this uh, planning. And in reality, it, it, it often just is a waste of resources. Not saying we shouldn't plan, but the idea of being adaptable, flexible, and building core attributes is really where we drive resilience. Well, I, I think sometimes we focus in, and not just business continuity, but people in general spend so much time passing while the rest of the world is changing and going right by you. So when you think you're finished planning, you've prepared for something that's way back there. <laughs> you know, you're not it, there it, anymore. <laughs> it's so true. And COVID was, a, was and is a great example of that. You know, I think we discussed last time, and I'm sure you've discussed it with many of your guests, you know, most big organizations had pandemic response plans, but they were 10 years old, not fit for purpose, didn't look at the real magnitude of a threat, and therefore, you know, really were, as we discussed in our last interview, risk theater. We were pretending we were okay, but they actually didn't add the value. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree completely. So let's jump in to one of the pieces we didn't uh, capture last time, and that is what is resilience for individuals? And you had a whole bunch of things that uh, mm-hmm. fell under this. 100%. So th- thanks for the opportunity to start this way, because I, I, in teaching the psychology of risk program for the last five years, we've learned a lot around the the sequential steps we need to actually thrive. And I didn't coin it, but I love the little acronym WIFM, what's in it for me. Mm. Because when we look at psychology, if there isn't a WIFM, people will not engage. They will not apply the concepts. So this is where most organizations make the mistake, where they look at what's in it for the organization first And then they try and fit the individual into the organization. So the idea really with personal resilience is if I'm not going to build the capability for me to make great decisions, both under pressure and in everyday life, the ability for me to accept the fact that I will get disrupted and that my plans may not happen the way I want them to and develop that agility and resilience to push through, then why would I do it for my team or my business? Hmm. So from an individual perspective, this is the starting point of everything. I, I talk about it in a four-tier model. So the model really starts with you. If you and and I, I say this to everyone I teach, and I say this to myself all the time when I find myself reacting in an inappropriate way, if you can't control the voice in your own head, if you can't build 
habitual responses to be effective, you're not going to be good at decision-making. And if you're not good at decision-making, you're not going to be good at life. And that's, so, that's really exactly. tough to do. You know, uh, it, it, Absolutely. Like you, I, I do that too. Every so often I've got to step back going, hold on, <laughs> think about it. What's going on? <laughs> and, you know, a simple example of that is when we look at the, all the research done into decision-making and there's so much wonderful research that's been done by people like Daniel Kahneman and Dan Ariely and, the, the list of social scientists and behavioral scientists and behavioral economists who've looked at this stuff is huge. And the, the uh, ability to access this information is out there, but very rarely do risk business continuity or the derivative pieces look at that stuff. They kind of go, oh, that's touchy-feely. But that's yeah. the stuff that makes things work. Yeah, it is. So it's quite simple. Like, having taught decision-making now for about six years, and we, we run a nine-month program through a university just to get on top of it. People always say to me, Gav, just give me the, I don't have time for nine months. Give me the, the short, you know, the one sentence. And if you want to get good at decision-making from a personal perspective, it's around building the best possible habitual behaviors to be able to make sure that the business as usual stuff happens autom automatically and your decisions are wired correctly because roughly 95% of our decisions will be automatic. We will use as Daniel Kahneman refers to it, system one or the intuitive part of the brain. But it's having the wisdom to know when to switch on your system two or the risk manager of your mind. And, and like actually, it's, it's actually not that complex when you think about it. It involves two things. It involves in the modern day, urgency and importance. And if we can't measure what's urgent and important and allocate our limited resources, and when I say limited resources, we're still talking on the personal level, right? There's two things individuals have in very finite amounts, and that's time and energy. Time you never get back, energy you have to refill. So if we spend our time and energy on things that are neither urgent nor important, and we find frustration in not achieving results, it's not a surprise. It's much harder in the modern world to do this than it ever has been before because of information overload, uh, echo chambers, false news, etc. So how does... That, that's got me thinking now with, with decision-making and, you know, all the news that's out there, um, especially, I guess, with the U.S. election, I'll use that as an example and everything that has occurred around that. How do you keep emotion out of that? Because a lot of people make decisions based on emotions, you know, and without actually um, thinking logically and taking that step back, like you said, you know. I love talking to you about this stuff because you get it. It makes my life much easier to explain these concepts. <laughs> so this is where the intersection comes. When we've looked at resilience, we've actually said resilience consists of three things. It's the risk and decision-making, it's high performance, and it's leadership. You need those three attributes if you want to thrive, if you want to be a high performer. So when we actually look at emotional control, it's fascinating because when we look at the research done into leadership, there's all the stuff out there about being authentic you know, being yourself in the workplace, except we know, and let's talk worst case scenarios because they're the easiest ones to get. And looking at the clouds in your screensaver behind you, it's good, <laughs> good priming. But realistically, it doesn't help that you, you know, have this empathy, this emotional capability, but you let it all out during a crisis. Therefore, poor decision-making where we need to be analytical, logical, and sequential and authoritative. On the flip side, it doesn't help that you are, you know, command and control driven during business as usual when we should be building rapport, trust, and um, strong teams so that we can weather disruption. So the challenge we've got is this is not easy. Everybody who says it, you know, we've got the winning formula. I've been working on this stuff for six years now and actually my whole career. And uh, it's a work in progress consistently. I look at the graduates of our programs. They are constantly working on things at an individual level. Then if they're supervisors or leaders, they're working on the team's component. And remember I mentioned four levels at the start, individual. Mm -hmm. So first I need to focus on me, then I can look at others. And if second I'm looking at others, I'm already looking at teams and potentially stepping into the leadership mindset. Then we can look at organizations, okay, which are you know macro beasts and have their own. So how, uh, how come there, there isn't a management level in there? So the management level is the second level. That's so me, others, okay. okay, organization. And throughout this, this is the, and it's a really good question you asked because 
people often listen to a lot of what we teach and they say, well, that's great, but you're talking all about leadership, not management. And we're saying, yes, it's true, because management skill sets are highly evolved. We've been looking at management since the first industrial revolution. We've had 300 years of practice to develop management. Leadership has been ignored for the most part. So it's not that leadership is more important than management or management is more important than leadership. High performers in the modern world actually need both skill sets or at the very least the wisdom to know where they're stronger. Mm -hmm. I like to talk about a concept. And again, this is one of those. I'll share the little anecdote because it's quite funny how it happened. I've been for, for years, ever since my bodyguard career transitioned into me mentoring, guiding and training others, talking about the need for leaders to be both strategic and tactical at the same time. You can't only be one or the other, otherwise we don't thrive. And I can't simply divide tasks for staff based on you're at this level or this level in the hierarchy. Because we know now with social media and everybody being plugged in 24-7, your lowest level employee could actually cause you the biggest disruption or they could give you the biggest innovation. It's not just you know the CEO or the chairman of the board anymore. So the game's changed. And I was giving this lecture about two years ago uh, actually to the Department of Defense. And I had a guy come up to me afterwards and he goes, Gav, you're right. And I'm, obviously we all like to hear that sort of thing. <laughs> but he said, we've, he was, he was from army intelligence and he said, they've actually, they've started calling the skill sets tactical, a combination of strategic and tactical. And that's the skill set they're trying to build. So this is the interesting piece. When you are looking just at yourself, we tend to focus primarily on the tactical. When I shift to that next level, when I'm looking at others, we need strategy because otherwise, you know, how do we understand what others need to get them on the same page? Mm -hmm. When we look at organization, if we don't understand ourselves, we don't understand others, organizational structuring, strategy, goals, risk management, continuity, most of those things then become risk theater again. We build all the stuff, but when we get disrupted, it doesn't work or add value. The last level, and I, I normally stay clear of this level because if you haven't achieve competency in the other three, it's wishful thinking, is when we talk at a societal level. And we talk about how would we change society's ability to respond or do things. And it's really interesting. Uh, I spoke last year, the Institute of Strategic Risk Management ran their first large global conference. And they had, it was a virtual one, and there were about 900 people from around the world on it and some super smart speakers, like really intelligent people. <clears throat> but it was all up here. You know, they were all talking about the problems with society and the problems with our response capabilities and why we failed so badly with COVID and how we're set to fail again. And for me, listening to these experts, I was going, the piece that we're missing is the individual. What do we need individuals to do to change their behavior, to influence others so that the societal change takes place? And that, that's sort of become my passion now because, you know, we can talk about all these society level things, but if we don't get the others right, None of them stick, or they take yeah. an exceptionally long time to work. Well, it, it's also easy to point out all the things that are going wrong, you know, um, you know and, and speak up here, especially with um, academics. You know, they speak up here, and this is the way it should be, and, you know, but then trying to trickle that down to, as you said, the individual, the people who are actually going to do this, the people who have to come up with the, the plans and, and everything, there's a disconnect, you know, and, you know, how do, how do you bring those together for one, you know, uh, go ahead. No, but you're, you're exactly right. And I think this is the, these are the opportunities that are presented to us in the modern world that historically, and, and this is a fascinating thing. The more we've been researching this idea of resilience and how it works, the more we've actually found when you go back to, uh, you know, let's talk about the, the, the age of discovery where, you know, Columbus set off, in his ship and, you know, discovered a new place and, you know, Cook came to Australia and discovered Australia. Those were very loosely coupled management systems and they were empowered management systems. You know, they were, those, those explorers were given authority based on the skills that were developed in their earlier careers and they were trusted to go out and do it. We've almost come full circle now where we are back to that a little bit now, where we're at the point where, we can't control everything. We can't control everyone. And if we do, we don't get the best outputs anyway. So, you know, the, it's, it's the, different, the fundamental difference, though, between then and now is technology. We are, so, we are technologically enabled in a way we never have been before. 
which means our ability to magnify uh, decisions, okay, the ability to be influenced by external factors, and the ability to influence has never been greater or easier. All of those things come with risk. To be a drawback as well, that sometimes we rely too much on the technology to make the decisions for us that, you know, it comes back to bite us later on. 100%. So this is a fascinating segue, but let's go, let's go with it because it's really important. We went through a period, and if you think about it, and I'm sure your listeners will be thinking about it, uh, let's say 205 to 2015, everyone was talking about big data. You know, how do we get more data? How do we analyze the data? How do we quantify risk out of analyzing that data so we make better decisions? There's been all these studies done now showing that, well, no matter what we do, bias creeps into data analysis. And that bias then continues to set trends and influence decision making. So don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of big data and I'm a fan of analytics and I'm a fan of risk quantification. Uh, As we said last time, I am an acknowledged risk nerd. I love everything to do with risk. (laughs) But the problem we've got is some decisions happen too quickly. We don't have time to be able to access that data. In many cases, it becomes information overload because there's now too many variables to consider. So our decision-making gets further skewed. Collaborative decision-making is great. It's one of the most effective ways to manage bias, but collaborative decision-making doesn't work really well in a crisis. So, well, and that leads me to another, another point because you, you touched on this earlier on um, during crises, you know, and with all this data, how is it that some people that are in leadership roles tend to fail? You know, um, you know, they, they don't seem resilient. They can't make decisions. They, you know, they kind of fall apart. And yet somebody who's not a leader, not a manager, not a team leader, suddenly turns around and is able to take charge and, and they go the opposite direction. They become the leader, you know, and can make quick decisions, can analyze things. How, how does that happen? You know, that, you know, people change spots. We're going to, we're going to need a round three of this conversation, but uh, <laughs> let, let, let me answer the question because you've, you've, you've nailed the crux of why most crisis management response teams fail. Okay, because what we've done based on managerism and hierarchical thinking that we were programmed with over the last 300 years from the industrial age uh, forward is we've related management capability back to leadership capability and we've confused the two. So very often people have climbed to the top of organizations for two reasons. One, they were good at a job. So the perception was uh, I'm good at this job so I will keep becoming good at the next job. Or two, they haven't, they've either been able to cover up their mistakes or they haven't made significant mistakes. And there's a whole discussion we can have about the corporate psychopath and the corporate sociopath and how they- I've got lots of stories on those. (laughs) And and managerialism centricity actually favors those because people who are not affected by emotion, who can make hard, cold decisions without caring what other people think or feel, thrive in management environments. What happens when we're in crisis is different. So when we're in crisis, we have to understand all the pieces we have, which is the managerialism component, but the leadership pieces come to the fore. And some of us are wired differently from others. It's not good or bad. We just have different skill sets. So to thrive in a crisis, first and foremost, we need very good adrenal control. We need the ability to manage our own adrenaline, control our own flight or fight instincts so we don't freeze and don't panic. Most managers who have worked their way up the food chain have never had to develop that because they're sequential, structured, and focused in what they do. They also usually have time to give orders, follow up on those orders, implement, and control. In a crisis, as you know, the the key defining term is that it's overwhelming. So because it's overwhelming, you know, we need people who won't panic when they're overwhelmed. And it's fascinating, even in our own consulting business, We do a lot of uh, crisis emergency management capability uplift, and we primarily train people on four attributes. Situational awareness, mindfulness, and vigilance forms the first part. So if I can't even scan my environment, figure out what's happening around me, and be focused enough to act, all the others are irrelevant. Then we can get into critical thinking, which is the ability to evaluate different pieces of information to make the best possible decision which is the next sequence. It's actually making decisions. 
And the challenge when we make decisions is sometimes, and I, I, I use this often, but I, 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 this is the way I describe it. All we can ask of anybody under pressure is to make the best possible decision based on the best available intelligence. And me and you will have a chat shortly about information versus intelligence in the most appropriate timeframe. And sometimes it's about not making the decision until we get more intelligence. Other times it's about accepting the fact that more information or intelligence is not going to help you make a better decision. And you've got to have the courage to do it. So decision-making itself is actually an art we have to teach, not something we assume people can do. And then the, the fourth variable, the fourth skill set we teach under pressure, and I'm just talking about the crisis decision-making pieces, is the ability to apply effective and directive communication. And I'll just spend a few minutes on that one quickly because it's so important. Well, we have to take a break because we're already, <laughs> like we always do. We're over time already, and I know we can keep going. So keep that point, and we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you ready to hear from investors and get insight on different asset classes? Join host Troy Eckert for the program, Talk with the Texan, Money and Life. Troy works with high net worth investors and is ready to bring you the secrets he's learned in his 35 years of alternative investment experience, along with his guest experts. If you want value, you'll need to listen in live every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today, we are talking with Dr. Gabriel Schneider. Gav, you were talking uh, about effective uh, communication. Uh, can you uh, continue on with that point? I think sure. that's a really good one. Thanks, Alex. And as a segue, I'm sure you have done this many, many times. But when you look at all these, you know, post-disaster reviews, post-incident reviews, all the research done into lessons learned, I can guarantee you one of the things you'll always find is a comment like, uh, it was a failure in communications. Communications could have been better. Uh, you know, had, had this been communicated more effectively, our response would have been different, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, again, like we discussed in the first one, if comms is a problem, why aren't we fixing it? Why do we keep making the same mistake? 
And what I wanted to explore very quickly is that it's never been harder to get good at effective directive comms than it is today. And I'll quantify that for you with a few examples. So political correctness, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, a, I'm not against the idea of making sure we are non-offensive, but almost every expert and leader I talk to today says they spend a lot of time analyzing their emails, thinking about what's coming out of their mouth so they don't offend. Okay. In reality, what they're trying to do is uh, try and understand somebody else's mindset and sensitivities so they can change a narrative for that. It's got nothing to do with the idea of intent. So in other words, if I didn't intend to offend you and you got offended, you, where's the vulnerability there? And even as I've explained that, we can see how much time, effort, and energy we, any, anybody who's functioning in the modern world has had to learn to be politically correct. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you can't function. We spend a huge amount of energy doing that to the point that when we're in a crisis, we, we are not effective at comms anymore because we are so wired to overthink, hyperanalyze, and try and figure out how we're not going to offend people. We can't be directive anymore. So there's two parts to this comms under crisis capability. The first is training ourselves to actually be able to flip and go, well, during business as usual, I'm collaborative, I'm empathetic, I really do want other people's opinions because that's how we manage our biases. But under crisis, we also have to train ourselves to flip and go, now I have to be effective and directive. Mm -hmm. But also we have to train people to receive that communication and act on it without taking offense. And we are struggling with that. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, and I've seen it happen, is uh, as people do that, they water down. What they end up doing is watering down their, um, their message. I don't like to use the, the term dummy down that some people mm. use because that is offensive. Yes. <laughs> but they, they water down the message, and then the point that they want to get conveyed doesn't get conveyed at all. And during a disaster, the second part is, you know, when you are trying to communicate, the demand for communication goes up and the amount of time you have to do it goes down. Exactly right. And this is why we've said effective and directive, not one or the other for crisis or emergencies. For business as usual, it's different. You have to build really robust emotive capability, rapport building skills. And, and to close the loop on this, every time we train people in these four skill sets, right? Situational awareness, critical thinking, decision-making, effective directive comms, I'm always saying to people, when is the best time to prepare for a crisis or disruption? And they all look at me like stupid question, like not when you're dealing with a crisis. It's in the pauses between. The problem is during those pauses between, we fall back into business as usual, which means we're not building the skill sets. And you, you as an experienced professional in this will know, you know we, one of the things experts always want to do is exercise, test, and practice more. And the constraints around budget, time, and all those things stop that from happening in a way that really has benefit. So, you know, we've got to think differently. And this is where, you know, we started our discussion talking about the individual. This is where the focus has to go back to. We spent, and if we think about the way we've educated people up until very recently, it has been, this is how you fit into society. These are the rules you follow. Don't think for yourself, follow the rules, don't adapt, don't innovate, follow the rules and you'll you, you will be successful. You will be a good member of society. Now we're in the world where we're going, hold on a second, the most successful people are people who think of ways to disrupt or innovate. The most successful people are people who are able to adapt when things change around them. And most of our education system doesn't develop that skill set. So it's up to the organizations now to go, it blame, blame and history, looking backwards doesn't help. What mm -hmm. we have to do is change the leadership mindset to go, let's build people. Let's build our people to thrive in their individual lives so they make great decisions based on the best intelligence, et cetera. And they are productive at home, just like we want them to be productive at work. They take those skill sets. And I, I think I briefly mentioned the whole of person model I like to teach, work life, virtual life, personal life. They take those skill sets and they apply them across all three. They don't only do them when they're at work or when they're at home. And that's how we start to build robust performance. Then the next step is the leadership piece around how we glue teams together and how we structure organizations to be high performing. That's a whole different discussion. But this uh, idea of building people, if 
your listeners are the people who I think they are. The fact that they're already listening means they get it. They're already looking for the clues that will make them thrive more. And it's a continuous journey, but what we have to do, and, and this is the conundrum, right? It's not about taking the old. And when I say the old, it's the managerism-centric, cookie-cutter, systems-focused approach only. It's not about saying that doesn't work because without that, we can't scale, we can't have consistency, and we can't get outputs. Mm -hmm. It's about taking that but now superimposing those skill sets with it to get the best of the old with the best of the new. And there's a slightly different formula for every organization that's required. It's not as simple as just going, well, do this online course and you'll, you'll be fine. Now, that's where I, I, I wanted to ask a question is, how do you get that started? Because, uh, you know, do, do um, the corporate leadership have to get this in their head before they can get, you know, um, I don't want to say push it down, but uh, get it embedded into their organization. And then, you know, at the same time, at the end of the year, you get these performance reviews where they tell you what you're supposed to do, which is some, you know, almost like pigeonhole you. You need to learn this, be stronger on these weaknesses. You know, and it's like, well, wait a minute. You want me to do all of this on this hand, <laughs> but then at the end of the year, you do a performance review and tell me everything I'm not doing. You know, and it's like, you know, it, 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 they don't align. Exactly right. So this is the fascinating study outcome we've had from all the people we've trained over the last you know, six or seven years is the outdated managerialism-centric approaches of you know, KPR management around very specific segmented outcomes become pigeonholing, right? We, 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 we go, and I'll give you an example of that. You know, say I work in a call center, my performance indicator or my performance requirement is I must make 20 calls in an hour. So generally speaking, once I've made 20 calls, there's no more incentive for me to make 21. Mm -hmm. There's also no incentive for me to go, actually, you know, I make 20 calls, only one of those calls is useful. How do I actually get the other 19 to be useful? So it's, it, this is where the resilience model actually comes into play. We have to move from the compliance mindset to the resilience mindset first, and then we can look at resilience. So it, it, to answer your question directly, I'll, I'll give you a few examples. You are exactly right. Generally speaking, because most organizations are still hierarchically dominant, the way to start is the top. And where we found good success with this is a project champion usually within the C-suite who, who, for whatever reason, is frustrated and wants to do better, they get this idea. Normally what happens then is we would do a brief for an executive team that they would like the brief or not like the brief. If they like it, we then would go up to the board and do a board brief. That usually results in us then coming back and going, right, what does the organization need and designing a cultural change program. Mm -hmm. Having said that, some of the who best projects that? we've... Say again? That, sorry, just sorry to interject, but who owns sure. that? cultural change program. Lovely. And this, this is super cool because <laughs> who owns it usually determines the likelihood of success. Mm. And we found numerous challenges with this because I'll go back to you and I'll ask the question, who owns risk and resilience in an organization? And it's oh, a trick question. Everybody does. Thank you. You, you passed. You're a rock star, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, 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 the truth of it is, if everybody owns it, then everybody should buy into it. Therefore, it, consensus is a challenge because of siloing. So the bigger the organization, and we've now sort of jumped the teams thing straight into the org thing, but that's fine. Let's keep going with the organization because that's where most listeners are frustrated. They, 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 they work in an organization. Uh, I believe people who listen to your show are probably people who want to do better, as we said. So they're, they're looking for these clues and they're frustrated because they can't get the best outputs that they want. The, the challenge is multifaceted. It comes back, and this is why we've glued leadership and high performance together with resilience, because one without the other just doesn't work. You could be the best at decision-making, but if you can't enact your decision, i.e. perform the task, who cares? doesn't work. Yeah. I, could be the best, I could be the best doer, the best actioner, but if my decisions are poor, I'm wasting my time and resources. So to answer your question directly, we've, we've looked a lot at change theory in the last few years. Because of technology and because of the way the human centrism is creeping into the modern world in a positive way, we can leverage influences 
better. So there's two theories I like to use with this stuff. The first is nudge theory, that in the hierarchically managerially centric um, processes of the past, what would happen is the top would decide and they would tell the bottom and the bottom has no choice. They would just implement Mm -hmm. or they would lose their job or the consequences would be too big for them. We've seen now in modern organizations that doesn't work, right? Because if the top says something, but the middle doesn't agree, they distort the message. People on the bottom get a distorted message. And we've seen this. One of my best ones to actually case say with us are IT infrastructure changes. Because, you know, you get the smartest people who are really good at tech going, oh, we're transitioning to a new IT system. There's no change management. There's no with them. So the individual doesn't go, what's in it for me? Therefore, what normally happens is organizations spend millions of dollars, they roll out new software, and people still use the old one. Yeah. It's, uh, having a pro- program and project management uh, background as well, I have seen that more times than I can count. 100%. So it's a really easy example to get. Whereas if we did it differently, and we actually looked at the human-centric approach, we looked at, well, why is the existing software not working? Is it a failure with it? Is it a user error? Because to your point earlier, and you're exactly right, technology can already do more than humans can use it for. Right now, it can already do more. So we've got this constant seesaw, and this comes back to the idea of where we're at now, which is the fifth industrial revolution, this dance between man and machine trying to figure out how we get the best of both. It's uncharted territory. Nobody in the history of recorded human evolution has been where we are today. So there's no playbook. There's no manual. Mm-hmm. So what we've got to do is leverage the best of managerialism with the best of human centrism and build our people. So to answer your question, uh, I like to look at influences and use nudge theory. So the idea of nudging is we're, we, if, we, if we tell you you have to do something, we force it on you, it, it's highly unlikely it will stick unless we have massive consequences for non-compliance. So there's no resilience or presilience built into that now. It's pure compliance. If, we're, if we can construct narratives, and I like to talk a lot about Simon Sinek's work in leadership. If you haven't come across his stuff, he's written some really good books on it. But he's a big advocate of purpose. You know, start with why. Mm-hmm. And we've had really good results with this. And there was a case example, and I'm happy to share this with you or any of your listeners, where I learned this the hard way. We, we got a, one of our first big contracts as a business owner was back in 2003, I think, with a very big bank back in South Africa. And we landed up training 23,000 people for them over three years. And the project was really written up and was highly successful in taking the culture from switched off to switched on. The mistake we made is we thought it was just training, not cultural change. And one of the big lessons we learned out of that first project was make it personal. So that project was actually called the You Matter campaign. So I don't know how much more personal you can make it. It was such a good title. And it was, there was so, I've got a case study written up so I can share that with anybody who wants to hear about it. But if we can find a purpose statement that everybody agrees with, and when I say everybody, there's no organization will ever get consensus. There's always going to be, even in a half functioning organization, you'll have five to 10% of the people who, shouldn't be there, shouldn't be working and don't want to play. Mm-hmm. And that's in a healthy organization. In an unhealthy one, you know, that, that variable figure will go up to between 30 and 60%. And if it's above that 30 or 40%, chances are that organization is on the way down and probably can't pull up. Uh, so it's a, the, the idea with nudging is if we get influencers to buy into our ideas, we empower them, educate them, teach them how to influence and construct a narrative and support system that helps them, and lots of organizations, I'm sure you've experienced this, they'll talk about, you know, business continuity champions or risk champions or, you know, the accountable people. Fire wardens is another example of that. You know, we have, as long as we have fire wardens, we're okay if a yeah. fire happens. <laughs> we have these responsible people, but it's a shift in going they're responsible. They're actually not responsible. They're influencing others. And the good news is uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a really good book on, you know, tipping point and how tipping point Mm, theory works. But it's actually really interesting that if we understand the law of diffusion of innovation, and you can quickly Google that if you've never heard that before, very simple. The idea is normally when we roll something out, the first people that grab it are innovators and they are willing to wear the pain 
In other words, poor performance, the, the thing that they're using doesn't work because they like being the first. Then I didn't catch that. Oh, Could you try? That's interesting. <laughs> then after, after, after them comes the early adopters who look at the innovators and they go, all right, they've, they've tried it enough. It seems to have not hurt them so much. We'll grab it now. Then you get the early majority, the late majority, the laggards. I actually, in, in organizational cultural change, we've added a, a new dimension there. I call them the AAs, active antagonists. So these are people right at the end of your spectrum that they are disgruntled, they hate, the, they hate the company, they hate life, and almost anything you put in front of them, even if it will help them, they will hate it. These are the people, you know, you give them a pay rise and their first response is, well, I bet you so-and-so got more. Or, yeah, you know, they're the ones who like to call themselves the, the devil's advocate, but, you know, to try and make it soften what they're Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's around leveraging that. So, you know, one of the things we drive with cultural change is not just using hierarchical mapping to go which department should own this. It's around using social mapping around who has the most influence in the right places. And this is where the world of risk is changing. You know, we cannot anymore go a safety department or a business continuity function or a risk function owns risk management or owns their piece. It's around how many aspects of the organization can they influence? And, you know, experts in our field are very good at identifying, you know, critical failure points or conversely critical success factors. But what we don't actually do is enable and empower the people around those critical success factors or critical vulnerabilities to influence each other to future-proof themselves. Mm -hmm. So we, we often, and it, it's quite interesting, we, we, we again use risk data. We go, oh, we've taught them how to do a BCP or we've done a risk workshop with them or we've kept the risk register up to date, but it's about culture. And to summarize and close... Just because they attended that doesn't mean it, it, it sunk in. It didn't mean they were engaged. It meant I'm just here because my boss told me to. 100%. And, and this is, you've, you've actually given me the perfect segue because we have less than four minutes now. <laughs> no worries. I, I, will, I, will, I will segue this within a minute, <laughs> or at least, at least, at least, at least, um, this is the segue. People always look at me and my career and I have this often. They go, Gav, you started your career as a bodyguard and a martial artist who likes to punch and kick people. Why should we listen to you about cultural change and high performance? And for me, it's as simple as this. My whole journey has been, well, first we were training people. Then we started supplying expert bodies. Then we started building policy frameworks and system frameworks and guidance and plans. And then the harsh realization came to the fore for me in about 2012, which is none of that stuff works if people are disengaged. If they don't care and they're not interested, you can have the best tech you can have the best people or experts, but if they don't care and those two things don't integrate, you're never going to have high performance. And if we can't even get high performance in business as usual, what happens when a disruption happens? You know, when, when something unexpected happens, we crumble, we break. So never mind bouncing forward. All that happens is we implode. Okay. Or at the, if, or at the very least freeze. And then we have got the mental health and recovery challenges that come with that. So the narrative of why we do what we do, for me, I have such strong fundamental belief in this. If we don't educate individuals, drive behavior, build robust culture, align to organizational outcomes, outputs that are good for me, good for you, good for us, good for the greater good, in 10 years' time, me and you will be having this conversation about the next thing that broke and yeah. we'll, be, we'll be frustrated about the same pieces. So we, we've got a golden opportunity now. And for those of your listeners who are going, oh, COVID has been terrible. It's really frustrating. We've, some people have lost businesses. People have died. All of that stuff is true. But the flip side of it is we've never had a bigger opportunity because everyone has been disrupted. So pre-COVID, we started talking about this stuff in 2016. And honestly, I had so many business and government leaders look at me and go, we love what you're saying, Gav, but my whole career has been stable and my managerialism skills and my authoritative capability have enabled me to be successful. So I'm not buying what you're selling. Yeah. No, nobody can say that anymore. We've all been disrupted. Yeah. So if you work in an organization and you want to look at doing this sort of human-centric change, 
combined with technology, because it doesn't help we don't leverage the technology. It's just a, we're going to have poor performance if we've got great people with the, with the wrong tools. This is your window. And it's a great gift we've actually been given. And I think that's the perfect line to end this episode with. Gav, fantastic talking with you once again. There were so many, every time you talk, I start writing things down and, uh, you're like, oh, I want to ask him about that. Oh, that reminds me about this. And, you know, so who knows, maybe we will end up talking again for a third show. <laughs> I, well, you, we'll, we'll have to see if we missed anything on our agenda. And I have a feeling there is. <laughs> and anytime and, and equally happy, you know, if your listeners have specific areas of interest that they, that they want to send you, you know, we'd love to hear more about this or more about that, or here's the problem I have. For, for me, my passion at the moment is we need to find these early adopters. We need to find people like you who get this and want to figure out how to hack the system and help empower them and give them the tools and the knowledge to change. Mm-hmm. So anytime you want, reach out. I'm happy to chat. I'll put uh, your company's email address in the description of the show when I submit it to Voice America and uh, YouTube. So Thanks. And, and, and on. No, awesome. Thanks. And on that too, you can include the Brazilians website because there's a lot of tools there. We've actually okay. recently, we recently put up 20 short instructional videos that cover the journey from compliance to Brazilians and it's free. So why oh, not? Hey, what, what's better than that? Free. <laughs> <laughs> so we've come to the end. Thanks again, Gav. I, I, I know you and I are going to chat as soon as I hit the stop button here again. So, but <laughs> it's been fantastic talking with you once again and to everybody listening and watching. Stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.